Hello and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, here, of course, with Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. So, Victor, you have a recent piece out with the provocative title, End College Football, and in it you refer to college football as, quote, the most hypocritical of all university institutions. Explain what you mean by that. Well, I'm, I'm, I was using the definitions that campuses have established for acceptable behavior, and one of them, of course, is the idea that or the claim that one out of every four co-eds will be sexually assaulted over their lifetime as a student on the campus. And yet, uh, statistically, football and basketball players have a higher than average propensity to commit sexual assault on campus. In fact, in the most recent case of the University of Missouri football team, I think uh, a large percentage, a much larger, about five times more football players had been charged in the last five years with sexual assault than had the general student population at the University of Missouri. So, And yet, you don't hear any campus outcry against athletics. I think the absurdity reached unbelievable levels when 56 scholarship athletes who were African-American at the University of Missouri demanded as part of their uh, threat to boycott the next game that 10% of the faculty and staff at the university should be African-American when, in fact, they comprise 52% of the football team. What I'm getting at is that campus diversity operates under the principle of disparate Impact. In other words, it doesn't really matter whether there can be bias found, detected, suspected. If a particular agency, department, branch of the university does not reflect the proportional representation of the surrounding community, then it's felt to be in violation of various federal statutes. So here we have sport, uh, college sports teams, uh, African-Americans, about 75 to 80 percent on average of college basketball teams well over 50% of football teams, and yet the very players on those teams are accusing the university of not reflecting the ethnic mix-up, makeup, whatever we want to call it, of uh, the surrounding community. There are no Latino centers. There's no Asian quarterbacks. Uh, there's no uh, mentoring program. There's no outreach. There's no special recruiting efforts to make the football team more ethnically and racially diverse. And this is all beside the point that um, on the one hand, the football team, they're almost like Roman gladiators. They're professional warriors that go out and make a lot of money for the university, and they take great risk, and they get no money. On the other hand, they're exempt from most of the normal uh, protocols that students face, that is, uh, taking exams on time, taking particular classes that are not individually suited for them but are in the curriculum, in the catalog that they have to take, and uh, having special counselors, etc. So they're more privileged than the average student, and they're exempt from the sort of protocols that students must follow. And on the other hand, they're not as well paid as the professional athletes that they actually are. We seem to be in this sort of springtime for political correctness and, and the victim culture these days. It infects a lot of institutions, but higher education has got to be right at the very top. So, uh, Victor, to continue the infection metaphor, why does higher ed have such a weak immune system? Why does it succumb to these trends so readily? 
I think people have a good re- have a big reservoir of goodwill toward the university. Partly, it was the GI Bill when after World War II, millions of young men who came back from fighting went on campuses and improved their skills and got better jobs. Partly, it was the Enlightenment in the 19th century that addressed things like slavery and um, indigenous peoples' treatment. A lot of these came out of the universities in the Northeast. But I think what's happened is that that social contract has now been broken because the contract implicit was you guys in the university give our students in America a broad education, teach them how to think inductively, make them good citizens, make them aware of American history in the positive sense. And in exchange for that, we're going to exempt you from what most people – put up with. And that means we're going to give you tenure so that faculty members after six years will uh, enjoy lifetime job security. We're not going to accuse you as we do of Walmart of having uh, pay disparity for the same job. So if you have a part-time PhD teaching humanities 10 and you have a full professor top step teaching humanities 10, one person will make five times more than the other for exactly the same work. So unequal pay for equal work. But we're going to exempt you from that. We're going to exempt you from advertising laws. So when you tell young undergraduates, when you get out of college, you're going to get this type of employment, um, that doesn't happen. Yet we go after trade schools who uh, don't provide the jobs that they promise and we accuse them of false advertising. We're going to, uh, we're going to excuse them from price gouging. Uh, universities have this strange system where the federal government guarantees student loans. Student loans then are paid to the university. The university then has no competition or no worries about its revenue stream. So it jacks the rate of inflation higher. Um, jack, excuse me, it jacks the rate of tuition higher than the rate of inflation. And then when a student defaults, they know that the, the federal government will pick up that that loan. And there's no incentive then to economize. And we could go on and on. But when you talk about too many CEOs and not enough uh, men on the assembly line, we're talking about really the the university where the ratio of administrators, just to take one example, in the California State University system over a 20-year period went up 212% while teaching personnel went up 3%. So the universities have become – really top-heavy. And you really see this with these campus protests, don't you? You see that the first thing they demand, it's not more physics professors that are Latino or or more biologists that are black, but it's always more diversity advisors, counselors, assistant provosts for cultural affairs. And that's a way of bringing right. in more people who do not teach and do not add to the intellectual rigor of the university. When it comes to those protesters, you've been a professor, spent a lot of time on college campuses over the years. You still teach in the midst of all your other endeavors. In the years that you've been on university yes. campuses, what what sort of shifts have you witnessed in the dispositions of students? Could you look a decade or two ago and and perhaps see the trajectory of where we've ended up today? Yeah, I could. Uh, I guess what I would sum up is the devolution into something I'd call prolonged adolescence. Partly it's the economy that when I was going to the university, both as a student, a graduate student, and then as an early faculty member, young faculty member, it was assumed that you got out of the college and then you you got a job and got married and had kids. And today 
that four-year experience has blossomed as five, six, eight, ten, and then people sort of work and sort of don't, sort of live at home, sort of don't. And then there was this idea in the 60s, as bad as it was, this barbaric idea toward drugs and alcohol and random casual and callous sexual hookups, that these were adults that were engaging in this behavior. And even though it was pretty much nihilistic and self-destructive, they at least as adults were making the argument that I'm, I'm 18 now, I can vote, I can go in the military, I can do whatever I want. Today, they've kept that same baggage. They still have... Uh, mixed dormitories. They still have uh, a, an attitude towards sexual hookup that's very promiscuous. They still use drugs and alcohol, but they become Victorian in their pruder. They say that, you know, the university has to protect me if I'm not happy after a sexual union. The university has to come in. I heard a word on campus I didn't like. Well, the university said somebody was mean to me. I saw a sign that was offensive. And this is from the university that used to, you know, institutionalize the F word and have posters that were pretty graphic. So that's new to me is we've raised this um, passive aggressive young group of people who feel nothing wrong with going up to a professor or a dean and screaming at him in four letter words or barging into a library. And then as soon as anybody questions that, they almost collapse and go into a fetal position. So it's really disturbing. They're, they're, they remind me of the French youth of the 90s that was all very critical of Versailles and said they were and uh, very critical of World War One and said they were going to take over uh, France and never do anything again and then sort of collapsed when the Germans came in in, in May of 1940. Is a higher education, or I guess maybe more accurately, the higher education establishment, is it too polluted by politics at this point to be salvageable? I guess what I'm, I'm really asking you here is do you have to look to different sort of parallel institutions, the Hillsdales of the world or, or online education or, or is there hope to save sort of the existing legacy institutions from this sort of cultural rot? What keeps this whole system going is the brand. In other words, at first glance, if you came from Mars and you said, why would anybody pay a quarter million dollars? And then when they leave campus, they couldn't pass an exit exam in a basic subjects. They don't know what the Parthenon is. They don't know when the Constitution was crafted and approved or ratified. They do not know who Alexander Hamilton is, and yet they paid a quarter million dollars for this. So what keeps it what keeps it going are these huge tax free endowments and these huge annual giving and federal loans that guarantee tuition hikes so to address that you'd have to bring in competition one thing i think we should really do is stop uh, this blanket federal loans sort of a ponzi scheme where 25% of the loans are defaulted we should just cut that way back and that would force universities to be economical and they'd have to cut some of their administrative bloat. We should also really have institutions that provide some knowledge about what universities doing so alumni owners get a good idea where their money is going. One of the worst problems, I think, is somebody who's been very successful in private business and he wants to be either philanthropic or he wants his name emblazoned on a hallway or something on a beautiful campus, prestigious name, and he gives us money and then the money is not used for the intent that he envision. So I think that giving has to be really recalibrated. People should not give money to universities anymore. 
and let's say exactly how it's going to be spent. And finally, we've got to get over this idea of a brand that, you know, I, I'm somebody who graduated with a PhD from Stanford, but believe me, when I was a Stanford graduate student, 21 years old, I was teaching introductory Greek to 18-year-olds. That's not a good deal. And you could have got a much better uh, Greek experience going to Cal State Fresno when, and taking Greek from me when I was 50. But the point I'm making is that going to Yale or graduating from Harvard does not mean that you're necessarily educated. When Barack Obama says that he's uh, a graduate of Harvard Law School and he was a you know Harvard Law Review editor, that does not mean he knows anything about the Constitution anymore. We all know that you it's hard to get into these universities according to your grades and test scores, at least for some groups of Asians and white males, etc. But once you're in there, there's very little accountability and there's very little education. So we've got to get away in the popular culture from the idea that I'm a Yale or a Harvard man and that means I'm smarter or better or, or at least more adroit at something at somebody else. And that's going to take some time. But it's a sham. It's sort of like the Wizard of Oz with the guy with the the gears and the wheels behind the curtain. And that's what Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, Berkeley have become. Final question that I'll put to you. Somebody today um, who was following in your footsteps, you mentioned getting that PhD in Stanford. If you were talking to a young person working on his PhD, hoping for a career in the academy, looking at all these developments that we're, we're talking about today, what would you tell them? Well, that's sort of like talking to a terminal cancer patient. I would have told him before <laughs> to, stop to stop smoking, don't go in there. But once you've made that fateful step, I, wouldn't, I don't advise anybody. I get, I get asked a lot every week by young people, and I always say the same thing. Do not go into university teaching because the number of tenure-track jobs are declining, part-time employment, exploitive as it is, is increasing. And once you get there you have no freedom of speech because if you were to say something on social media or write something, that's going to come back to haunt you if it's not not deemed progressive enough. So I don't think it's a wise thing to do, whether it's uh, career-wise, um, you know, uh, salary-wise, family-wise. You're going to eat up your, your 20s and you're going to wake up at 30 and find yourself a part-time teacher at UC Riverside making 18000 a year. Uh, and then censoring your speech to please somebody who's incompetent. If you're really interested in scholarship, I would say if you really want to get a PhD, do it very quickly in four years, then get out and get a job in the private sector and write or comment at night. And more importantly, you can see in the internet now that with this popularization of knowledge, it doesn't really mean much anymore to write an article like uh, the sexual ambiguity of Dionysus and the cult of Ephesus in Asia Minor, and then have it peer-reviewed and appear in the American Journal of Philology for six readers. You'd be much better just to put it out on the Internet and let the the, the uh, mob go after it and find out whether it's good or not. So that's one good thing about higher education, I think, that people don't really need a Ph.D. to have ideas. And you can see and in my own field of military and agrarian history, I see that all the time, that there's outsiders that go in and write things and then they attack Ph.D.s and university people. And it's chaotic and it's undisciplined, but I think you distill more knowledge than the old aristocratic method that the university was the gatekeeper of 
All right. That's all the time that we have for today. Join us next week for the next installment of the Classicist Podcast. And in the meantime, stop by hoover.org where you can read all of Professor Hansen's commentary. We'll see you back here soon. For Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.